I'll tell you what, there's so much to do, so much to see, and so much to eat here at Dell Diamond, but there's only one voice you're gonna hear for the past 20 plus years. The pitch to Terry. High drive, deep to left field. Back it goes, that ball is launched. Mike Caps is the director of broadcasting for the Round Rock Express. He's the voice you hear when you listen to the games on the radio. Because the picture's there for you on television. Television baseball is so easy to do because you just tee it up and turn the color guy loose. And while it may sound like a dream job, it is not an easy one. I do about five hours of this kind of work. Then I do about two hours of workout and out to the park we go. So you've already worked seven hours before you get to work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's not, it, look, it's not work. Work is what he described his job as more than two decades ago as a television reporter for CNN. Work that nearly cost him his life in Iraq during Desert Storm when his convoy was ambushed by two truckloads of Iraqi Republican guards. They have their AKs bayoneted and they surround us. And I'm looking up at heaven and I'm saying, couldn't you just pick me off in a firefight? Why do, why do we have to do this to the throat on the last day? God is my witness. Two big A-10 warthogs, the anti-tank airplanes come over the mountain where we were and buzz these guys. And they left and we left, got to Ankara and flew home from there. He came home, quit his job, and followed his instinct. And I keep hearing his voice, you can do this, you can do this. At the age of 45, he reinvented himself as a baseball announcer. I fell in love, and it just, and it went from Tyler to AAA Nashville the next year. The year after that, I'm doing uh, Major League fill-in for ESPN Radio. In those 22 years, he's seen some of the best come through Central Texas. Well, we've had Andy Pettit, we've had Roger Clemens. Your Walter Mitty dream turned into a Steven Spielberg moment. You know what I mean? His dreams continue, the long hours taking no toll. 71 going on 35. There's a lot more baseball to call and a lot more road ahead. Between El Paso and Austin, I know most of the DPS troopers. And he's not slowing down anytime soon. First name basis. <laughs> more or less. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. My name is Tim Hanlon, and as you know by now, this, of course, is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. Thanks for coming on along for this week's episode as we go back to the national pastime. It's baseball time once again, friends, here on the old podcast. And the setup, you know it now already, the voice of the Round Rock Express. His name is Mike Caps, And if you're a baseball fan in the Austin region, you know the, those dulcet tones. For many years, the voice of that AAA franchise. And um, we have a wonderful conversation uh, this week uh, that goes in so many different directions and is a wonderful story, uh, but it centers on, and our sort of little adjunct uh, into our conversation this week, uh, is the uh, new book that uh, Mike has out, um, posthumously uh, co-authored by uh, the legendary Chuck Hartenstein, 
uh, or Hartenstein, um, former player in baseball um, uh, of renown, played with the Cubs for a bunch of years, and certainly had his share of time in the minors. Uh, the, the name of the book is called Grinders, Baseball's Intrepid Infantry. And uh, it's a wonderful story uh, that uh, it actually seeks to be uh, kind of almost a, a metaphor uh, for life generally, um, sort of in celebration in baseball and in the, in, in the broader uh, pastels of life about the grinder, the type of player, or the type of person that kind of shows up every day and, and kind of literally grinds it out. And uh, it, it has a very special sort of meaning and um, um, an understanding for Mike, as you'll hear in this conversation, a wonderful conversation. Um, going back to his childhood, uh, it all kind of starts uh, around 1960 when a nine-year-old Mike Caps was sitting with his grandfather uh, in a, a, a now long gone Burnett Field, just on the outskirts of Dallas, uh, mosquito infested at that, relatively ricky, rickety and, and pedestrian. Um, at that time, home of a team uh, uh, in the uh, in the minors, the double A at that time, the Texas League, known as the Dallas Fort Worth Rangers. Um, and his grandfather instilling some baseball and, and maybe backhandedly life wisdom about the players that Mike was seeing on the field and that that some of them, actually a lot of them were going to, you know, perhaps, you know, uh, stay in the minors and, and we'll never really get to that next level, that cup of coffee in the, in the majors. Uh, but others perhaps maybe getting that shot up into the major leagues or perhaps after having gotten that shot may come back down into the minors. And these were the grinders of baseball, the players that kind of, made the entire enterprise run. And while you may know the major players and, and get their autographs and see them on television and all-star games and, and all that kind of stuff with the big leagues, uh, it's the uh, larger number of these players that are uh, grinding it out in the minors. Uh, and those are the ones to watch, to pay attention to, uh, because uh, it's on their backs that the game uh, continues to hum, and it does to this very day. And as we'll get into our conversation with Mike in just a few moments, uh, you'll see how um, uh, essentially uh, this story and that sort of uh, the uh, the beginnings of that uh, almost became sort of a metaphor for Mike's life. It's sort of a round trip, if you will, or a, um, a return to home, so to speak, full circle, um, as Mike will tell you and us, um, the career as television newscaster uh, all the way to CNN's uh, intense and uh, award-winning war coverage in the early 90s of the uh, Iraqi invasion or Iraqi war, um, and the end of that career somewhat abruptly and on purpose, and a rediscovery of some of those early memories of he and his grandfather and his early love of baseball, uh, and a, um, a recasting, if you will, of his professional life, and frankly, his full life into what has now been a decades-long career, second career, if you will, as the voice of the Round Rock Express. Um, and it's a wonderful journey uh, that we go on for the next uh, hour or so. And it touches all kinds of things, forgotten and defunct and previously domiciled. Not only do we talk about the Dallas-Fort Worth Rangers, but also the Dallas-Fort Worth Spurs, uh, which came a few years later and was really... Um, 
the uh, uh, the impetus uh, or the the last minor league team in the region before the arrival of the Rangers uh, in the early 1970s and Turnpike Stadium, which then begat or became, I guess, uh, Arlington Stadium, which was uh, at least two stadiums ago uh, for what is now the Texas Rangers. But we talk about stuff like Crossley Field. Uh, in Cincinnati, his uh, his first Major League Baseball game. And we talk about the Colt 45s in Houston uh, and their first few years uh, as that incarnation. But we also uh, talk about uh, a lot of un- uh, forgotten, uh, some are still around, but most are not, minor league teams like the Tyler Wildcatters, where uh, Mike got really his kind of first uh, broadcasting job, the Nashville Sounds. Uh, he made a stop in Sioux City, the St. Paul Saints, um, but we also talk about some, uh, earlier memories, uh, both direct and indirect of, of teams long forgotten, for example, like the Austin black senators of the old Texas colored league or the Austin Braves, a double a franchise in the Texas league, uh, that preceded what is now the round rock express. Um, we talk about even the round rock Express's history, a little retcon, a little, uh, retroactive continuity. Uh, discussion uh, the Edmonton Trappers of the double uh, the Triple A um, uh, Pacific Coast League they actually were what the Triple uh, A version of the Round Rock Express were prior and there's a whole sort of uh, a torturous history there too um, and it's just tons of fun uh, it's a great story Mike's a great guy a, a great rock contour uh, and obviously the voice the uh, the dulcet tones uh, it's what uh, has kept him going. Uh, in his, uh, let's not call it new career, his his now career as the voice of the Round Rock Express. It's our conversation uh, with the wonderful um, and poignant uh, memories of Mike Caps coming up for you in uh, just a few moments' time. Uh, we're going to dispense with the uh, traditional uh, promotional uh, banter t- uh, this week, and uh, we're actually going to uh, highlight uh, a book that we'd love to give away. Uh, we really couldn't sort of squint hard enough to kind of uh, warrant a, a full-on episode uh, for the topic of this book. Uh, but J- uh, Jason Cannon has a brand new book out from our pals at uh, the University of Nebraska Press uh, about Charlie Murphy, one of the uh, uh, historic owners uh, of the uh, legendary Chicago Cubs. Obviously, doesn't qualify for our little corner of the world because the Cubs are still very much alive. Uh, not this season, <laughs> doing very well, frankly. Uh, to, much to my wife and her parents' uh, uh, dismay, uh, but uh, the book is is wonderful. It is uh, it's called Charlie Murphy, the iconoclastic showman behind the Chicago Cubs, um, and uh, Charlie Murphy was um, the owner of the Cubs uh, from 1906 to 1913. Which, as you may know, even if you're just a general baseball fan and not necessarily a Cubs fan in particular, you'll know that was a very um, a uh, robust period of time during the Cubs' uh, 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 life because that's when two, until 2016, the only two, World Series titles, 1907 and 1908, that's when they occurred, was under uh, his ownership. And there were a couple of uh, National League pennants uh, e- even beyond that. Um, so this is a wonderful history. Uh, and uh, if you're a Cubs fan uh, or a Chicago baseball fan generally, uh, you will want to know more about the guy who owned the team during perhaps their most fertile years. Geez, until 2016, the last time 
the only other time that they won a World Series, the Cubs. It's uh, Again, it's Charlie Murphy, the iconoclastic showman behind the Chicago Cubs. That's the name of the book. We'll have a link to it on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Uh, you can order it now. It just came out. Again, University of Nebraska Press. But we have one, no, two, two copies, count them, uh, to give away to our fair listeners out there. Uh, if you could be the fastest fingers first, all you got to do is send an email answer to this trivia question. Be one of the first two people, and we'll timestamp them whenever you hear it and send us the f- uh, correct answer to this trivia question to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you will win a copy of this book, and I'll send it to you. I'm holding it right now in my grimy little hands. I will clean it off and make sure that you get it post-haste uh, for your correct entry. And now, what is that trivia question? Well, here it is. Charles Murphy, Charlie, Charles Webb Murphy, Charlie Murphy, the owner of the Cubs, again, from 1906 through 1913. All you need to do is tell me what is or was, see what I did there, the name of the ballpark that the Chicago Cubs played in during Charlie Murphy's ownership. There's only one. What was the name of the ballpark? that the Chicago Cubs played in and won two World Series and a bunch of National League pennants on top of that during his ownership of the team between 1906 and 1913. Just got to tell me the name of the park that the Cubs played in during his ownership. Again, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you mail in, your email in, your, your, uh, your answer, your guess. And again, the first two correct answers to that question will receive a Free copy of the hardcover, brand new Spankin edition. Charlie Murphy, the iconoclastic showman behind the Chicago Cubs. Thank you to the University of Nebraska Press and to author Jason Cannon. We wish you nothing but success with the book. And uh, we move on. Let's get now into the minors, largely, although some couple of couples, cups of coffee with some, some major league memories, too. With the great Mike Caps, uh, we kind of get into the conversation uh, somewhat sideways. Uh, for my mutual um, uh, uh, work uh, world of uh, what we used to both of us be in is the world of broadcast television news. Um, but it's a great entree, and uh, you will love the conversation. Here it is. Please, as always, enjoy. Austin, Texas, hello. <laughs> All right, that's that's my <clears throat> very bad imitation of Larry King from back in the day. How well, are you? you know what's funny about that? Um, Larry and I knew each other very, very well. I was on his Larry King live program. So was I, uh, actually on the radio. But I digress. Go ahead. This was this was during the Gulf War when I was covering it for CNN. It was I was on almost every night uh, in the summer of '92 during the Midwest floods. He, he, the guy was just a savant in so many ways. And, and his interview, he would do book interviews without reading the book because he wanted to he, ask. He would questions. do all interviews without reading anything. Well, that's right. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, and uh, I know several guys who worked very closely with him and they were, they just marveled at it. Just marveled at him. And and it was, I don't know. I just thought he was a trip, man. It was awesome. Well, you and I are a little 
cut from the same cloth. I um, I actually remember your CNN days uh, quite vividly, actually, because at the time I was working uh, as a little cub uh, news producer at the Washington Bureau of CBS News. Um, oh, I, great. I went to undergrad at, at Georgetown and interned there and stuff. And that's ultimately, awesome. ultimately, well, it wasn't awesome when you looked at the paycheck each week, but um, <laughs> but but <laughs> these were the uh, these were the uh, Larry Tish years. Um, but sure. we were, you know, I, to see all these, uh, uh, you know, this was still, I, st- I think, really the late '80s, early '90s, right? Was still sort of this uh, halo, I guess, of the the last vestiges, I guess, of the three sort of major broadcast television networks and no news groups and all that Tiffany network in particular was CBS and, and CNN was literally just eating our lunch on a, on an hourly basis. And then when the Gulf war hit, it was just the ultimate expression of, I know it was a different experience for you, but the ultimate realization that the, 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 the infrastructure of broadcast television news just was not going to keep up from here on out. Yep. Yep. And you know what? Uh, let me just run this at you, Tim. I, I've always believed that had those three jumped in and tried to do something similar, they could have done it better. Um, but Ted had, had Ted had this idea that that guys who were eager to get in the trenches and and uh, go anywhere and do anything on a moment's notice. Uh, I hate to use the term grinders because my book is about this, but, but we're grinders and would ultimately get it done. But I'll tell you, I just, I always believed. And, and there was a lot of angst in Atlanta in the days that I was trying to put one of those together. It God almighty. It cost them so much money just every day. Well, let, let's, let's use that sort of a, as, as a prelude, because obviously the story of, of your book starts obviously earlier than that from when you were a kid, but let's get right. into what your, let's call it first career was, because uh, I think that's, it's important to kind of set that sort of bar because it certainly sure. sets the springboard for where you are now and what you've been doing uh, with your life ever since. But um, uh, so tell our audience uh, why they might of a certain age who might hear tinges of memory in this voice of yours, perhaps from another place, not calling games on a baseball diamond, but over the air on television, either locally or with CNN uh, on cable news. Well, if you lived in the Dallas Fort Worth area in the eighties to the early, early nineties, well, actually to 1990, I was on WFAA, the uh, ABC affiliate, uh, all sorts of different coverage I was the first television reporter in the history of the state of Texas to witness an execution. I covered uh, 16 space shuttle missions. We ran a newsroom. Marty Haig was an old CBS operative who who ran WFAA and ran it exactly like a network newsroom. We took Learjets all over the country, all over the world, literally, to cover news. And so uh, that was a wonderful 10-year experience. I had a year out of FAA and was the deputy bureau chief and assignments manager for the ABC Midwest Bureau in 1986 and 87. And that was, that was a unique experience because it made me understand management much better. And, and uh, you know, I wasn't on the air much then, but at FAA during Hurricane Alicia, I was on ABC uh, at the top of the program uh, both East and West coast with, with my coverage of, uh, Alicia hitting Galveston and Houston. And it was the first time, uh, 
a non-network correspondent had led both broadcasts at ABC. So that was kind of cool. And then we got over to the Gulf War and um, I, I just, I had only been aboard CNN uh, in June of 90 and by November the 1st or late October, I was already over there and uh, I came out briefly and then came back. I was over there eight months total. So yeah, there were like Bernie Shaw and uh, uh, I guess Tom Mentier. I'm trying to think of some of the other names of the, that I remember. Well, from. and uh, yeah, they were there before us because they were there. They were there. Actually, I was there before them. And then they came over and they were, you know, pinned down there in Baghdad and some magnificent, magnificent uh, reportage uh, of them being pinned down in that hotel with guns a blazing and rockets going off. And um, it, it just Bernie Shaw was, was and still is one of the all time greats in my mind. It's just a tremendous, tremendous broadcaster. And uh, that Gulf War coverage, I think, did a lot to set CNN apart. If, if it already hadn't set itself apart from its Tiananmen Square coverage, but that Gulf War, the constant din of 24-7 CNN being on the air. Tim, I, I, I came out two different times and was coming through the Amsterdam airport one morning at 6 a.m. and got stopped six times by people uh, wondering if I was going into or coming back from the Gulf War. And I never got into that business uh, for self-aggrandizement. I, I was more of a slug reporter than, than anything else. But, but, but I was just amazed that so many people had been watching I mean, 6 a.m. in the Amsterdam airport. Are you kidding me? It was just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Well, uh, maybe you describe a little bit. That clearly had an effect on, on your life on, on a, a whole bunch of different realms. Right? Because um, uh, and I remember actually, you know, that this is part of the story. But I mean, you know, when I was at CBS, you know, I did have that opportunity to kind of go uh to go if i wanted to and i i sure. you know i'm just out of college i'm not quite sure and every you know everybody's assuring it's relatively safe because it's embedded and you know it's the us and how could you know uh but you know the reality is certainly much different you're there literally before sort of the um uh, the Bigfoots come right uh, in the terms of, of network news, yes. right? You know, so that's yep. the, the Tom Brokaws and the Dan Rathers at the time would, you know, okay, then we'll fly in. Um, but it does have an effect on you, right? And and it's it's um, it's not always obvious in the moment because the adrenaline is getting you through. You're you're doing your duty and you're reporting, but you know, maybe perhaps when you're on an airplane going or to or from Amsterdam or you are you know, uh, having something to compare it to once you're, if you will, out of that situation. I, it, it sounds to me, based on what I've read about you, that, you know, it does have a cumulative effect that doesn't always sort of manifest itself all at once, but perhaps maybe sort of over time and, and to a point where it becomes life-changing, altering, and certainly questioning. Well, I will get into that. And, and, and I started this way. It actually started as I saw as vicious combat on the streets of Houston covering drug raids as I saw any place else in the world. And I was in the mountains of Northern Iraq after the Gulf War and the British Royal Marines were training the Pesh uh, guerrilla warfare. And we saw some horrendous firefights, but the cumulative effect you mentioned is, is really there. Human beings by and 
of themselves have no real way to cope with seeing people blown apart day by day by day by day. You stuff it one way or the other, either by alcohol, either by drugs or both. Uh, it's, it's almost inevitable. And that's, I, I, I got myself into some trouble that way. It never cost me anything uh, in terms of job performance, but just trying to disappear to get away from it. And it was uh, a nightmare. And I woke up uh, the year before I finally left CNN to get into baseball. I woke up the night before I'd, I'd busted my head wide open with a bedpost. And that's when my life began to change because you, the therapist was a four tour of duty side gunner on a helicopter in Nam and a licensed Presbyterian late minister. And I had completely broken down in so many ways and was a dark soul. I will tell you, Tim, I was the darkest soul. People actually, a lady in Colorado, we were doing a, a light little feature one morning in Colorado and she came up to me and she says, I saw you on the Gulf War and I saw you in Waco at the Branch Davidian Siege. She said, I got to tell you, you're the darkest soul I've ever met. Well, I'll tell you one thing that, first of all, it pissed me off. Secondarily, I had it made me stop and think. And it was less than two weeks later that I woke up with that bedpost in my hand. So she was spot on. And you really don't, I worry about these people who are. In, in Ukraine now and covering this day after day. I mean, this, this has been going on since February for crying out loud. And, and probably I just for a lot longer, sadly, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Well, okay. Oh, well, since 2014, for sure. But, but Tim, I worry about them. I sincerely have concerns and my thoughts and prayers are with them every day because they're, they're going through things that they never fathomed they would go through uh, for such a long period of time. And it does the cumulative effect, uh, moniker you put on this is exactly what it is so why baseball as the pivot uh, in that sort of uh, that process i guess that that you ultimately started to go through and 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 recognize and, and kind of soul search and and other things to fix yourself and and get to the sort of the, the other side where does this baseball thing come from Baseball has always been my alt. It's always been my refuge. It's always been a comfort. My grandfather and my dad gave me the game when I was four or five years old. And my grandfather started taking me to minor league games in old Burnett Field, long gone, built in 1910. And I played in college, had a chance to sign and did not even know it, which is a wild story. But um, well, we want to hear that. I, well, yeah. Well, okay. So I'll give you the cliff notes version. Um, I had been invited to uh, an invite tryout camp only by the Montreal Expos. Now the Washington nationals, the scout was a fellow named red Murph. He had scouted Nolan Ryan signed Nolan Ryan. And he'd seen me play three or four times and I'd seen him. Didn't think much about it. Cause I was from a town of 1500 people for crying out loud. So I get this invite and I, I have, I have fortunately had, had very good speed and ran well for him. And as this tryout camp is developing, he sits me down behind a dugout out of sight from other scouts and college coaches who were there. And he, he tells me to cool my jets. Well, I didn't know what was going on. And finally, you know, at age, at age 18, you're so full of vinegar. Anyway, I just, stood up and said, I'm out of here. 
Well, 20 years later, I'm producing a documentary on Nolan for WFAA in Dallas. And I called up Red Murph and I said, hey, I'd like to interview you because you're you're a signing of Nolan. I'll meet you at this certain ballpark in Arlington, he says. So we're sitting there and he said, uh, your cousin Billy Caps is a dear friend of mine, but you don't know this, but I know you. I remember you. He said, you ran blazing speeds for us in this tryout camp. What you didn't know, you are the dumbest son of a bitch that ever walked the face of this earth. And I said, excuse me. By now, by now, John Sparks and I had had produced coverage and I had reported coverage of the SME football scandal. We broke that story. We didn't end up on ESPN 3030 for several reasons because, well, one of them was that the guy who filmed that thing um, actually uh, was an SMU graduate, which was fine. But but we're the guys who did that. And and so all of this compendium is whipping around and Murph says, there's a second reason you didn't, but I'll give you the first first. And he says, I, I, here's the deal. We saw those legs. I had seen you get a double off the second fastest pitcher I ever saw in Texas high school next to Nolan. And he said, I'm thinking, I haven't seen another scout, so I don't have to use a draft pick. I was going to sign you as a non-drafted free agent and send you out to see if those legs would play. And he said the second the second reason was there were 12 Division I college coaches wanted to know where you went. Well, Tim, if you look at it today, everybody, there, there's so many scouts and so many guys looking at, at players, they would have known exactly where to go to get in touch with me nowadays. Not so much then. But Red handed me a scouts card. I worked part-time for him, helping him run off tryout camps. When I was back from CNN, I'd go see a player he needed that he couldn't get to see, whether it was amateur or professional player. And this turned into, as I left CNN, I called Red and I said, we're going to write this book we've been talking about. And that was the first book I wrote, The Scout, Searching for the Best in Baseball. My grandfather sat with me for day after day after day at that old ballpark. And we came to a point where they're playing the Minneapolis Millers, the Red Sox affiliate, Dallas-Fort Worth Rangers, the Kansas City Athletics affiliate. That tells you how long ago it was. Uh, And... He points at the left fielder. He says, watch that guy. He's going to be big. Well, I guess so, Carl Yastrzemski. But on his score sheets, he had check marks alongside five or six players from both teams. And I said, what are those check marks? He said, these are these are guys uh, probably next week or the week after you'll see some of their names in, in box scores in the big leagues. And then they'll come back down uh, to Minneapolis or to Dallas, Fort Worth. And he said – those guys are the engine that drives baseball's bus. And you know what? That stuck with me. So all that to say, all this information to tell you, baseball has been my alt. I played football in high school, got six concussions, can, couldn't continue on. But it's always been baseball. Always, always, always. And I have so many people to thank for that. Well, so, so tell me the genesis then. So this also stretches back this love of the game, or at least this uh, – uh, uh, understanding of the game stretches all the way back to when you were a kid. Right. And that that's, yeah. that's what struck me, obviously in our adjunct into, you know, forgottenness, right. The, this right. thing called the uh, it wasn't ever for too long of a team in the double a Texas league, the Dallas Fort worth spurs yes, in Arlington, Texas. Right. So maybe, and, and yeah. one of the themes that we've certainly learned over the last five plus years of doing this silly little show is 
there, there tends to be, especially with with males, but I think it applies to females too. The more we sort of scratch the surface and the, to uh, women's sports too, but but certainly uh, there's a, a a period of time in one's quote unquote normal all American uh, you know childhood where you know, guy, boys who are, are inclined towards things like sports, it's, it's an impressionable time, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Yes. And some of those things kind of just maybe uh, uh, in an outsized way imprint themselves that uh, somehow come back or stick with them perhaps more than any other time in their developmental years, right? It sounds to me like you sort of fit that category when it comes to the sport of baseball. And, and maybe one surmises that sort of is a thread that wound up coming back to you perhaps at a time, maybe when you needed it most. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, it, it, and you are so spot on about this. And, and I just, you know, um, I'm not a religious zealot, but I am a man of faith. And I just believe that uh, this is, uh, it, this really, really turned my life around in so many ways uh, it took away the darkness. I'm, I'm, I'm looking outside my wife's office where I've set up to do this at Oak Trees and Sunshine in Northwest Hills section of Austin, which is just a gorgeous place. And the blessings have just abounded from this, Tim. They absolutely have. And, 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 it, and it, it, the, 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 the link to it all has to do with the game and faith and um, a wife and kids and grandkids who understand this whole thing and love it and, and um, are, are neck deep in it with me. All right. We're going to get into what you've been doing ever since in a couple of minutes, but I, just take me back to the nine, 10 year old you and tell me what this Texas league was like, what you thought it was at the time, what your experiences of this Spurs team was like. Um, and I guess what ultimately became a pretty uh, long-lasting friendship with a guy that's actually was sadly recently passed part of your current book about grinders. And, and, and cause it's clear that, that what you were experiencing at the time, the seeds were being sown, but I, I guess the, the point is in the beginning, wh what do you, what are your first memories of going to this thing called baseball? That's if you will, professional in, in scope and, and, and what was it like back then? This is before even, uh, Arlington had the Rangers, right? Well, I'm going to take you back further than uh, Turnpike Stadium and the Spurs. I'm going to take you back to the Dallas-Fort Worth Rangers. They were in the uh, American Association, which was then a AAA league. And uh, that's, that's, that's my baseball roots. The ballpark no longer exists. It was built in 1910 across the river from downtown Dallas. And, and it was run down and ramshackled. And that's where my grandfather really stood out as a hero. He'd been a Pirates prospect before World War I broke out, uh, was transferred just before the Meuse-Argonne offensive to um, artillery, ordering artillery fire, and lost hearing in an ear. When he came back, put on a uniform at Forbes Field for a tryout, he began to field ground balls and stumbled every time out of the gate. And the pirates said, what, what's going on? He said, I've lost hearing in my ear. And I just, I, I don't. So he, they, he, long story short, he didn't sign, but he found in me a, a, a baseball buddy for life. And it just evolved from going to 
the Dallas Fort Worth Rangers games as a seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 year old. And then we shifted out to Old Turnpike Stadium, which was then the double A Texas League. That baseball is is so different because pitchers hit. Uh, these were these were grizzled guys who'd been around the game. That they were bouncing back and forth between the big leagues and double A AA and triple A and and uh, Chuck Hartenstein was the prototypical grinder, uh, a pitcher, uh, smallish, all American at the University of Texas, still holds to this day. God rest his soul. Uh, he's in the top 10 ERAs of pitchers who pitched in the College World Series. My cousin Billy Caps signed him, signed Chuck for the Chicago Cubs, and that launched Chuck on a 24-year baseball career, uh, first as a relief pitcher and then as a, as a major league pitching coach and then a scout. So if I'm beginning to paint a picture of where this all began, it's, uh, it's playing Little League. And as soon as a little league game was over, I'm listening to six different major league games that I can get on my transistor radio in East Texas. Um, my grandfather and I are trading phone calls twice a week, at least. He lived in Dallas and I lived 90 miles south of Dallas. I was raised 90 miles south of Dallas and just talking about the game. And, and when my dad died, I was a junior in high school and my dad, my parents were the least little league parents you can imagine. But by the time I was 15 years old, I was being invited to tryout camps and my parents would go along and they would sit out in lawn chairs and watch. And, and, um, one story that sticks out so vividly in my mind, my dad was talking to a scout from the Cleveland Indians. This was an Indians tryout camp about 25 miles from where I was raised. And my dad said, so, um, and the scout had called him over. He said, so what can I do for you, uh, Mr. Goff? And he said, well, your boy's a craftsman and he needs a better piece of leather to handle in the field. The next morning, my dad gets me up at 6 a.m. and we drive the 90 miles to Dallas to old Doak Walker Sporting Goods in Dallas. And Doak was there and he outfitted me with my first Wilson A2000 glove that I used all the way through college. So, <laughs> it's deeply ingrained and that's where it all started. So the, fo so what, what is your, what are you following, especially with your grandfather, the, the, the minor league teams, the major league teams, yeah. the, the, the discovery of all of these various teams and stuff. This it's gotta be sort of a, almost like a box of wonder because you've got all these little, oh my Lord. little, little depots and, and, and broadcasts and, 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 and players to your, to your grandfather's uh, astute wisdom going up and going down and, and it's yeah. like a system. It's like a whole root network. It, it was, it was every day I spent with my grandfather, every day I spent with my dad taking me to all-star games out of town and it, visiting with him every single day was Christmas day. I, I just can't describe it any, any better than that. I mean, it was like, yeah, we followed all of that. Uh, minor leaguers uh, tracked them all the way through the big leagues for and 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 the broadcast side of it, I could get games Minneapolis St. Paul uh, all the way across to Cincinnati. My first major league game my parents took me to was at Craw Old Crosley Field in Cincinnati, 1961 July. Dodgers Reds. 
Claude Osteen for the Reds, Don Drysdale for the Dodgers, one hour, 54 minutes. Both pitchers complete games. Drysdale won it with an RBI double in the eighth inning. If I wasn't hooked before, I was hooked, line, and sinkered after that. And so uh, then the next year, the Houston Colt 45s open up. They're now the Astros down in this built uh, for nothing other than to transition them from uh, outdoors to indoors at the Astrodome. Who cared? In those days, the Colt 45s would let kids who were part of the Colt 45s club, of which I was a proud member, go down on the field while these guys are taking infield and outfield practice. I got to stand away, 40 feet away from Roberto Clemente, making throws from right field into home plate. What an arm. And so, see, I've got this explosion of memories. Uh, and, and some of the places that I drive in the Pacific Coast, like I drive to Sugar Land and I drive to Oklahoma City, I sit and remember those, and I just laugh right out loud sometimes. At, at, at the blessing I've been given to have been brought up this way and to have had family members who, who played in this game, who scouted in this game, uh, and a grandfather who just dug every – he loved to come to my junior college games. He loved to come to my high school games. And it was it, – golly, just looking back on it, um, it, it it's a, a cornucopia of wonderfulness. It's all, it, it just blows up in my mind to think about it. Tim, were you were you there essentially at the at the doorstep of when uh, the Rangers actually became the uh, uh, the expansion team uh, in in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex too? Because the Spurs, it looked like, uh, and Turnpike Stadium in particular, right, was I I guess designed to kind of attract a big league team, yes. and they, they had some flirtations, I think, even before they, they ultimately came. They really did, and and yes, they the plan that they built it on included. A, a double decking all the way around that would uh, bring it up to 35,000 or whatever it was. And you got to remember by that time now, I'm 71 going on 35. So, so um, by 72, I'm already out and I'm uh, a news broadcaster down in Port Arthur in Beaumont, Texas, before I, I, I went across the, the interstate 10 to Houston so I would occasionally, when I had days off and I could race up, I'd take my grandfather out, out to see the Rangers. Um, and it was it, hot it, as it, hell, I'm guessing. And then your, your Colt 45 <laughs> experience is too, same, right? Oh my God. Yes, yes, yes. And that hot as hell continued through the rain with, through the Rangers all the way until they built this new ballpark. It's, yeah. They still hadn't figured it out until like, you know, a couple of years ago, like it's, it's hot in the summer well, in the, you know, Texas, right? She's crazy. It just takes a while down here to get things across. <laughs> they built, I haven't been in it, but I, but I hear it is nothing. They have a 40,000 foot, a square foot, 40,000 square foot home clubhouse. Just think about that. That's like 10 times bigger than my house. That's crazy, but good for them. I mean, it, it took a while to, to get them into that mode, but uh, maybe they can uh, sign some pitching that will now come to Arlington now that they have a covered place to play. Well, so, so okay, let's let's fast forward though to your to your current day job or night job or or uh, passion uh, project for the last twenty some odd years, um, and I guess maybe put it in the context. First of all, obviously describe what this is for people who don't know your dulcet tones already in the region, um, but also maybe in context to, 
I guess this fandom and this uh, uh, osmosis, I guess, understanding of baseball um, was your interest in the sport, both as a kid and then through your professional first career. Um, was it the the pro game? Was it the minors? Was it just the totality of the sport? Because um, uh, obviously where you are now is clearly about as top tier as you can get without being an MLB. Yes, it is. And uh, we have a tremendous operation in Round Rock. It's owned by Nolan and his sons and uh, Don, Don Sanders, a Houston uh, financial guru, and his sons. And it's run just like a major league team. Uh, it, it really is and always has been. And um, so I'd, I have done several fill-in Major League Baseball games for ESPN Radio and for the Rangers and for the Astros. And it's it, it this every night, and as soon as we get done with this, I'm going to start to prep for tonight's game. It takes me about anywhere from three to five hours, depending, to get ready for a game. But the joy of it is stepping in, the light comes on, and we rock and roll for three hours. And there are 64 ex-major league players that live within a 40-minute drive of our ballpark, Dell Diamond. And I take advantage of them, and I have as many of them on as can make it. Uh, they're major, former major league scouts here. There are college coaches. We have like five great college programs within a 30-minute drive of the ballpark. We're just baseball blessed here. Everybody thinks that Texas is a football state, and by God, it is. But – but it's a better baseball state than a lot of people think. And there's, there's a lot of good stuff going on. And Dell Diamond, where I've been fortunate to work since uh, the year 2000, when that ballpark and that, the, the Texas League team first, now it's AAA, opened up. And it's just um, – it sort of is, is the um, ultimate result of everything that's happened. And I've said to people many, many times, and you'll understand this having been in the big time news business, Tim, the things that, the things that I went through, the interviews, I mean, I've interviewed three seated presidents and I don't know how many U.S. senators and uh, I've interviewed people on death row in Texas and death row in Missouri and uh, just the, the wide scope, all of this, the broadcast background, there's no way had I not had that, that I would have had any kind of sophistication going on a baseball broadcast just wouldn't have happened. So that's why I say I'm 71 going on 35. I still have the fire of a 35 year old, uh, at age 71. And I certainly don't feel my age. And certainly when I walk in the clubhouse, I think a lot of those kids look at me and my great chin whiskers with great curiosity until they hear me talk. And until they understand that I understand who they are and what they're about. And it all just turns into, um, <laughs> I, I seriously wake up some mornings thinking, thank you, God, for putting me in this situation. Um, I can't imagine a major league job being better for me than this is. I mean, if somebody came to me and odds of this happening are about as great as uh, me piloting a space shuttle. Uh, that somebody said, you want to come do five years in the big leagues and then call it quits. And I'd say, yeah. But other than that, um, this is this is nirvana for me, baseball wise. It really, really, really is. Well, it doesn't hurt that you still have the pipes, right? Well, that that's a, yeah, that's certainly a blessing. And and and, you know, that's 
why we go out and do our hour to hour and a half workouts every day and weights and outside sprints and walks with my wife and our dog. And yeah, it's, but it's, it's how many people who have jobs that pay well have the time to get to do what I do in the mornings before I go to the ballpark in the afternoon. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Well, tell, just, me, tell me how the gig happens in the first place, because you mentioned and we haven't really gone uh, pulled okay. the thread yet about Nolan sure. Ryan, because he's obviously crucial to, to the story, the ownership of the team and all that kind of stuff. Um, how how walk us through how you get to this gig, because it's not sort of a natural evolution <laughs> to go from <laughs> calling, calling the war action on CNN to, you know, being behind the broadcast booth for 22 plus years. Uh, at the top tier in the minors. Well, it's been 26, and it, and it and it began while we were promoting uh, the Red Murph book at spring training in 1996. The Angels had a broadcaster named Bob Starr, and Bob had agreed to put Red on to promote the book. And in and God, Bob Starr was one of the best people I ever met. God rest his soul. And just a very, very, very underrated baseball broadcaster. This guy was terrific, terrific pipes, but he knew the game. He's working red in and out of his play-by-play doing an interview. And I'm thinking, good God, how in the world does he do that? And in between innings, I say, Mr. Starr, he says, I'm Bob, you're Mike. That's the way it's going to be. I said, okay, I'm 45 years old am I too old to get started in this? He said, you are a puppy. You get started and you keep me posted. Tim, two phone calls later, I come up with a gig in the old and long forgotten Texas, Louisiana league, independent league doing ball games for the Tyler Wildcatters. It was supposed to be 50 games, road games, ended up a hundred games, including home games. You talk about hooked. The next year, I get a gig as the number two broadcaster for the Nashville Sounds, and that broadcaster and I are still friends. Until last year, he was the broadcaster for the Memphis Redbirds. We had a time. Uh, then the next couple of years, I was an in independent ball in Sioux Falls, South uh, South Dakota. Mike Veck owned that team. What was it? Whether the the rate the something socks right. They were the Sioux Falls Canaries. Mike also owned in that league, the St. Paul Saints. Now they're in AAA in the International League, and uh, that, the Beck Bunch still owns that, that, that franchise. Then that next year was wild. I was living in New York City, and uh, Joe Klein, who used to be the general manager of the Texas Rangers, and I were dear friends, and he was the president of the Old Atlantic, well, Old Atlantic League, still running, and it's still great. And he got me a job in Atlantic city and it was, that was, that was some great baseball. I'd already been hired in, in uh, the, the, uh, during the winter meetings in 1998 to come to Round Rock and I needed a gig for 99. And that's, that was the gig. Uh, the old Cleveland Indians manager, Doc Edwards, God rest his soul was the manager, Ruben Sierra, former star with the Rangers and the Yankees was the center fielder. They had a guy named Chucky Carr who played in the big leagues years and years and years. Hector Villanueva, who was the personal catcher for Greg Maddox for years. They were all on that team. And the league was so good. That team and that talent 
couldn't come close to winning that league. It was just, but again, it's Nirvana and away we go. And, you know, I'd already been signed to come to Round Rock in 98, knew it was going to happen. And that first year was a Steven Spielberg movie, if ever. It just, so many great things happened. We averaged like 9,000 fans a night at double A. That was unheard of. We blew apart the double A national record for, for attendance. And it's just, we moved up to AAA in 2005. And that was, that was another joy ride stepping up a level. And it was, it's just golly. It, it's just been remarkable how this has worked out. So you were a grinder, if you will, in, in pursuit of your second career, right? Where, where did you, I mean, as you sort of began that journey, I mean, I, you know, you're in Tyler, you're in Sioux city. I mean, I, uh, Nashville for a cup of, uh, 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 I'm sure very strong coffee. Yeah. I, wh- where did you think this was going to lead after a couple of years into this? Well, I, I, I've talked to four different major league teams about major league gigs. So I thought that was going to happen, but you know, about 10 years into the round rock gig, I told a guy who was a general manager then. I said, you know, round rock may well be my, my big leagues. And I said, I, you know, I'm going to continue to pursue big league jobs but by now I'm 55 years old when I'm saying this. Right. And, and that's sort of a dicey age. I, everybody says now that it's my age, they want younger and cheaper in the big leagues. And I say, I could give them older and cheaper and still last five years or more. Uh, but it's golly again. Um, I, I, I obviously I was right about, Round Rock being my big leagues, but I'm telling you, it's a big league operation and it's run as such. And you just, it, 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 yeah, it's a, you call it a grind. I, th- I think the thing started uh, with two a days in high school football and just being persistent, playing through injuries um, and just having, and, and my mom and dad were like that. God rest their souls. I mean, they get knocked down, they get right back up. And one of the great lessons taught in athletics to me is what do you do when somebody knocks you down? How do you respond to that? I don't care what kind of situation you are in life, Tim. It's how you get up. You're going to get knocked down. I don't care whether you're in news business, baseball business, uh, financial industry, whatever. You're going to get knocked down. It's going to happen. It's, it's inevitable. And it's how you get back up. And I've always prided myself. And when somebody's knocked me to the deck, getting back up and, and saying, well, hell with you, I'm going to beat this and, and trying to get it done. I, I just think that, and I've tried to teach uh, our three daughters and son and uh, grandsons and granddaughters, the same thing. It's, it's not where you are now. It's how you end up and how you get there and how you get there is being able to Put yourself back on top once you've been knocked down because that's inevitable. All right, a couple of things that loose threads that I want to wrap up before we we let you go and 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 get into your uh, uh, preparation for uh, you got a game tonight, right? Yes, sir. Um, so uh, you were mentioning sort of the beginning of this franchise. I don't want to get too sort of into the weeds, but. Uh, there's a little bit of retcon, we call it retroactive continuity, uh, which is a thing that we kind of obsess about sure. uh, to this story, right? Which is this sort of uh, 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 papering over uh, idiosyncrasies of lineages of teams, right? And, and this, um, I, the Round Rock situation, right? Um, it started as a, uh, as a, 
as a Texas League double mm-hmm. A thing, right? And then, right. but then a couple of years into it, it actually, or it was a double A, I guess that anyway. But, the, but there was another team that came in and sort of took on the Round Rock name and all that stuff from from the no, Pacific. No. No, the way this worked. Here, here's here's how this worked. Yeah, so it gets a little. And this is what we love this stuff. So if you can help us, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come in and smooth your waters for you, Tim. Here we go. Thank you, sir. So, so the Ryan Sanders group bought a Texas League team in Jackson, Mississippi. So go figure. But we have now another Texas League teams in Arkansas and Oklahoma and whatever. They moved it to Round Rock. Round Rock has always been Round Rock under the Ryan Sanders name for 22 seasons, now. which is essentially a, a a well-off suburb, if you will, of the of the Austin area. Correct. It is. It's 15 miles north of downtown. That's correct. And and it's uh, there's two million people, two million people proper in Austin, and this area has blown up. Yeah, and it's essentially become Austin's major league team, if you will. Right. Yes. Yes. But University of Texas people might differ, uh, you know. Well, and and the new MLS team might also like to say that. they Okay, sure. (laughs) Okay. You and I got to have beer sometimes. There's no doubt about that. I'm buying. So anyway, we'll we'll argue about that when we see each other. So here's the deal. Uh, Five years into this, the Edmonton team and the Pacific Coast League came up for sale and Ryan Sanders jumped on it. This is the Edmonton Trappers for those paying attention. (laughs) You've done your homework. Yeah, that's right. And, and moved them here and a bigger hit than the Texas league team was a lot of people, a lot of the older baseball fans really liked the double a, but I liked the, the sped up play in the Texas league. You'd see ground balls get up the middle, not, not in the Pacific Coast League. These guys are veterans. They they know how to position themselves. This is way before analytics just took over. But but so it's it's going so well. And the Edmonton folks, for the first four years, we were AAA. There was the, the station that they were on in Edmonton, the radio station, would call me up two, three times a season wanting to know how their boys were doing they were wow that's that's fandom that's great i just loved it man and and i I regret that they don't call anymore because it was so much fun and it connected it it connected and reconnected the pieces and i just think when you can do that especially and and those people i mean they're you know you look at them on the map i mean they're what 14 minute drive from the north pole or something up there that's overstating stupidly overstating something but I was just enamored by it and I just I've always believed as I've watched Austin grow that by hook or by crook this is this is a major league area now because so many people have moved in here and so many people are baseball savvy we'll wait and see if that happens but but end of the day if it doesn't it's still going to be one of the top top tier triple a franchises in the country and it's always going to be run well, always going to be run the way uh, ballparks and, and teams should be run. And that's the state of affairs of how the Round Rock Express 2022 got to be where they are. Um, does the team uh, do any kind of uh, cap tip to 
the old Edmonton Trappers franchise or even the Jackson Generals franchises, you know, and memories or, 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 or uh, I don't know, uh, somehow remembering these teams or is that kind of just not part of the deal? It hasn't been part of the deal, but you know what? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go, I have a, I'm going to go by and visit with our marketing vice president today. And I'm going to lay that off on her and see what she thinks, because you know what? That's not a bad idea, especially we, what we do now we do uh, the Austin black senators were a huge hit back in the twenties through the early, early forties. And we do homage to them once or twice a year. And our guys get decked out in Austin black senators, uniforms and hats. And um, we do a thing called Copa de la Diversión uh, aimed at the Hispanic community. And we become the round rock chupacabras. Nice. And it's uh, and it, all of that is done trying to attract people and trying to make them understand that that there's a welcoming home for them if they come out and watch baseball out there. Yeah, and I don't want to get so and sure and and uh, there's there's that's also good ways to also charitably raise some dough maybe for the Negro League museums and all all yeah. that kind of stuff. But also, frankly, it's a heritage thing, and and you know, cynically from a business perspective, right when you do those retro things. I mean, let's look at, say, uh, the Carolina Hurricanes in the NHL, right? They have right. been newly uh, appropriating, shall we say, of the Hartford Whalers uh, yeah. logo and and stuff. I mean, much to the consternation of the generations of still Hartford Whalers fans in Hartford. Um, but it's, you know, I it, sadly, there's also a business motivation for some of this stuff, right? Because it's easy to print out you know, retro uh, jerseys or special commemoratives and all yep. that kind of stuff, right? Yep. Yep. I'm not advocating that being sort of the reason. It's probably more of a, a nice to have at the end of the day and it, co- it covers costs and stuff. But, you know, and look, I, to be honest, it's clearly a, a nook or a cranny of, of sports history is sort of that. But I owe, I, I do weirdly take sort of some, I don't want to say pride, but um, I do think it's important, right, to kind of get the history straight somehow. And there's generations like, yeah, I'm sure in your fandom there in, in Round Rock, right? Who just, you know, this thing that just shouldn't show up, uh, you know, from a, a space saucer and land in 2000 or 2004, whenever the, these, these, there was histories and, and situations that occurred before all of this. And, and yes, the, the, if any curiosity as to how and why this sort of is the way it is right now, most people don't care, but you know, it's not unimportant. I don't think. Well, let's back up to 1967. That's when the Austin Braves left downtown Austin and that ballpark, and it no longer exists. So they've been starved for baseball here for, what, 37 years uh, or 33 years since until they got the double-A Texas League team. And by that time, the city, the area had started to grow and uh, the Ryan Sanders family have, have, have always been deeply rooted into this community with the Nolan Ryan Foundation and ancillary businesses. They're in the banking business. Uh, they're in the ranching business and other businesses. And um, all of that said, they are invested wholeheartedly in this community. And, and I think that is one of the big anchors that, that folks look for they're not uh, we go to cities that have outside ownership and don't have boots on the ground and it's it's a different it's a different feel there's a different feel to it 
There's not that emotional attachment. I mean, there's all sorts of attachments to Nolan Ryan and his history from Texas and, and the things that, that the Ryan Sanders group have, have given back to this area. And so I think all of that is part and parcel. And those little, little, little land yaps, the hats, the jackets, the whatever from different, different kinds of uh, iterations of Texas League or, uh, or AAA teams in Texas all play so well to the older generations like me who, who remember those days and, and remember them very fondly. So all of that to say, it, 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 I hate the term it takes a village, but it really does to run a minor league team in, in a larger market. Like we're the 33rd or 34th TV market in the country now. And when we started here, we were like 56. So you can see how it's grown. And people remember those things from, from years gone by, especially the, the season seat holders who've been here since uh, the year 2000. They remember and uh, they smile when they remember that. All right. Two last questions. Then. Number one, yes, you're kind of you're, you're pulling a couple of threads on this now to the point of it being maybe threadbare. But uh, <laughs> what of the current state of minor league baseball? Right. It's been an interesting couple of years. Major League Baseball essentially. Uh, doubling down, swooping in, reorganizing everything. And and I think you also hinted at some other aspect to this, uh, which I'll sort of throw another log or two onto uh, and to broaden the conflagration, which is outside money, a private equity becoming much more of a pro sports kind of thing. They had a partial ownership stuff. It's always been about business, right? But sure. is, is it getting maybe on those two different angles too big business and or uh, are we possibly losing some of the the joy and the idiosyncrasies of it, or am I just reading into it too much and, and need to stop yelling at the clouds? You can yell at the clouds all you want if it helps you psychologically, Tim. That's, <laughs> but but look here here here's yes, it's big business, but I'm blessed to be in essentially a mom and pop operation that's big league of its nature. It's, it's just a different kind of animal as opposed to those corporate entities you're talking about. I take great pride in that. And I think our fans do. Uh, I do worry about um, major league baseball becoming far too involved in what minor league baseball does, because there's an essence to this level of baseball that is really about fans and really about um, giving a game to people who want to see it, love to see it, love to come to it, love to sit and have something to eat, drink some beer. Can afford it. Can afford it. Yes, that's really important. What I don't want to see, uh, I also don't want to see, um, let let me be sort of politic about this. Um, I, I don't want to see our ballparks become uh, gambling operations. And I, I'm concerned about that a little bit. I don't think they will. I, I really do not believe they will. But uh, all of that plays into a big financial uh, giant. And I think as long as Round Rock has the Round Rock Express and the Ryan Sanders group own it and the people who run it, run it, we're going to be in good shape that way. And, and they've shown no, no interest that I know of to selling off to any of those corporations. I just think you can take something that is, 
is really tangential to a, a locale, like the Express have been, become a part of this community, really big part of this community over the last 22 years. I don't want to see that hometown, uh, home fires feeling go away. It, it, that, that will ruin minor league baseball if that happens in totality, I believe. Do you, do you fear that the the the, the Ryan uh, uh, ownership structure has? It almost feels to me like that kind of ownership uh, approach has kind of become has gone from being the majority of of the ownership kinds of activities to being more the outliers now that all this other money and joint ownership and and now MLB hardening or or deepening has has occurred. I think you can. Well, it, it they are certainly different than than the big time operators that now run some of these teams, and and it's not a conversation that that I hear fans making much of, and I think that's simply because they haven't felt the big time corporate sting that some of these other operations have. And it's, I think we're a little too premature to make a total judgment of this until, until major league baseball has had five, six, 10 years of this. And we watch it as it develops one way or the other. If you follow what I'm saying, I just think it's, I think it's too early to pass complete judgment on what may or may not happen because we're that major league baseball is still trying to struggle uh, with promoting its players properly with um, uh, how to speed up games. And there are ways to do that. We're, we're, we are doing that here. Our, our time of game is substantially down because we've adopted a pitch clock and this automated umpire thing that we've adapted since uh, May has also uh, helped to speed up games or speed up pace. I don't want to say time of game, but pace of play for sure, because there's, it, it just, it just, I'm watching it every night and it has made a difference, both of them. And it'll be interesting to see if major league baseball is going to bite on either the clock or the automated umpire. But in your, in, I'm sorry, in your opinion, better, worse, or just different, different. And for me better because fans stay engaged. Um, We've had we've had a couple of games that were under two hours since the those uh, this this pitch clock thing has been enacted, and the automated umpiring system. Last year at this time we were averaging three hours and twenty three minutes per game, average. Now, this year we're at about two forty five. Big difference, big difference, and fans are more involved. That's because. They see players who are on the tips of their toes and ready to play when instead of having a pitcher walking around the mound two or three times, throwing the rods bag down, batter walks out, uh, tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock's running on this. This, this doesn't happen in, in, in the Pacific Coast League, not now. Uh, and, I mean, it did last year, and we saw the – we watched the difference. And it, I'm telling you, it's a market difference – Players stay on their toes. You're going to get a better game. They're taught that way. They're not taught. Uh, pitchers forever have been taught. Get on the mound. Get your business done. And just keep keep moving. Keep moving. And when, when the pitcher keeps moving, his infield defense 
is on its toes. The outfield defense is on its toes and the game is better for the fans. It just is. It just is. I promise you. All right. So last question to tie it all together uh, is, is all of this change for better or worse, or just, just evolution. How does that affect uh, sort of the, the, the key star of, of your book, the, the grinder type can, can somebody, if you will, make a career of, of grinding it out and hopefully getting a cup of coffee uh, in the majors? Or do you think that sort of grinder mentality, right? Which I think, by the way, is, is a, a, an amazing metaphor for life itself, right? So I'm sure you've, yeah, I'm sure you, you talk about that sort of as a yeah. two, but from a baseball perspective, right? Does that, um, I mean, is this going to, I guess I'm wondering what the, the caliber and the quality of the players are and will it make it easier or harder or, it'll just be just different in terms of how players develop, evolve, and either make or not make, uh, uh, you know, the bigs. Tim is probably the most cogent part of this entire discussion. And I'll tell you why for years and years and years and years, uh, minor league teams in major league organizations have depended on guys who have spent considerable time going back and forth. These guys are veteran free agents, the grinders. Major League Baseball is trying to cut back on the cost. And so I think we probably have only two or three veteran guys who have been uh, up and down. I really wish Major League Baseball would rethink that simply because in a clubhouse where not many people have been exposed to the big leagues players I'm talking about, they need veteran free agents and always have to show them every day, how a big leaguer goes about doing his business of playing in a major league game. It makes a huge difference. Ask any scout, ask anybody who's involved in this game. Uh, and, and, and you'll find out, that that's the God's honest truth. I worry about that immensely. I don't want to see the grinders go away. The grinders go away. It's going to take kids a lot longer to adapt to big league play. And what we're seeing now is a trend by a lot of organizations to take kids who are doing very well. Uh, maybe they're only into their third or fourth week in AAA, which is the jumping off point. And they're sent to the big leagues. Old scouts used to say, you need to give a kid 140 major league at-bats, pretty consistent major league at-bats, before you decide whether or not he's a true hitter. Same thing for innings pitched. There's, there's, a, there's a number of innings pitched that you need to give them before you make a value judgment on them. Nowadays, because we've got to have instant success, kids go up maybe get 15, 20 at-bats sent back down. Well, then I'm afraid value judgments are made too quickly. And I want to see the thing not askew like this. I want to see, and whether or not that happens, I don't know, because it happens at a pay grade way above mine. But I just think the logical thing, think, baseball works. The inner workings of baseball work when – certain value judgments that have been made in this game, veteran free agents being one of them and the need for them. When no, when that works, the game moves better because you got young kids coming through who've been exposed to those guys 
who had those experiences and can tell them how to react and adjust. It just is a smoother transition. And that's player wise. That's I, I see that uh, no veteran free agents are very few as a deterrent to what the development of players should be. And that, I mean, that's, I was taught by older scouts, uh, all of this stuff. That's where I'm coming from. I've got great chin whiskers. Yeah, it's old school. Um, I like a lot of the analytics. I, I think a lot of them are very useful. But when you have um, really small guys uh, working on their launch angle, trying to hit home runs, that's, for the most part, not the kind of player you're going to get. If everybody's trying to hit a home run, well, what happens to the game when you need to get a run, you need to move a runner along and you yeah, can't small ball or whatever. Right. Yeah. You, sometimes you need to be able to play that small ball and you simply can't get it done. Well, uh, I think a lot of fans love the fact that baseball has so many idiosyncrasies that have been there since the turn of two centuries. And, and uh, I think that's one of the allures of it. I'd like to see some of that held back. Yeah, change is inevitable. It, it, it's going to happen. Um, and a lot of that change I really, truly embrace and really, truly love. Um, we've got a young hitting coach here who just came uh, to us this year from uh, Missouri State. Outstanding young man. But here's the deal. He has AAA and AA experience as a professional hitter. So he's able to, he's able to walk some of these youngsters through uh, their growing pains and help them along because guess what? He's been there. And I, I think that's magnificent that they do that. Uh, guys who have had serious experience at AAA or AA and are able to hand that off. Veteran free agents, though, I think are, are so important to the future of this game. So you're sanguine about its future. Saying what now? You're, sa you're, you're, you're sanguine about its future. You, you still believe that the minor league system and all that kind of stuff has I do life yeah. and verve and, and value and all yeah. that stuff. Despite. Yes. Yes. And you know what? Um, the, it's almost like writing a melody. These guys, they have been in so many situations and tell so many great stories about playing days and clubhouse days. And it just adds magnificent history to this game and it's a game of magnificent history to begin with just delightful the mike caps experience you can experience him of course as the voice of the round rock express on uh all of those broadcasts you'll hear him uh live and in color on uh, Austin's Sports Talk AM 1300, The Zone. It also might be on 103.1 FM, The Zone. I don't know if they split the signal or simulcast it during the Round Rock Express games, but if you're down there in that area, well, you'll probably know that story and uh, how that goes by now. But uh, however you listen to uh, the games, enjoy a, the play-by-play uh, -play of our guest this week, Mike Caps, and we thank him for taking time out of his busy broadcast schedule to join us in our little 
our little show and our little exploration of what used to be in pro sports. You can follow Mike uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Cappyball, the number 12 underscore six, at Cappyball 12 underscore six. You can also follow him on uh, the general interwebs by typing in the URL caps, C-A-P-P-S, P-B-P. That's his play-by-play. Caps, P-B-P.com. While you're on the internet, you can follow us at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. That's where all of our shows previous and to come will be located. Of course, the easiest way is to just simply subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player. That's the best way to get the very latest and the very quickest episodes to your little uh, listening device. Uh, you can send us email at hello at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Go right ahead. You can follow us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, of course. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you will also find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, let's see. Oh, yes. We wanted to uh, shout out um, the uh, the intro clip at the top of the show. Um, and uh, we did not want to uh, forget the fact that uh, that was a, a, a clip that came from a report from um, KVUE-TV, the Tegna station down in Dallas-Fort Worth, and the reporter Rob Evans, that was his interview uh, with Mike Caps, and uh, that was originally aired, I think, back in April of this year. Uh, so we thank them for allowing us to set up this uh, little episode uh, with that great piece. We thank you uh, and them for that. We also thank our pal Jerry Payne, of course. He and Metropolitan Atlanta GA uh, doing Yeoman's grinder-like work, as always, grinding another episode out. Uh, much to his chagrin, 271 of these, Jerry. Can you believe it? Um, I'm sure he can believe it. He's probably going nuts just uh, uh, remembering the fact that he's done this for so damn long. But we appreciate it, and uh, we also appreciate you for listening and uh, more great stuff, F- football and baseball and Soccer and hockey and 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 uh, ho- uh, 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 some tennis, I think, coming up and some other stuff. Um, you name it, we probably have it on the docket. And uh, we look forward to getting them all presented to you in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, God willing and God bless. Take care. Stay safe. Stay warm. Stay warm. Stay cool. Gee whiz. If stay warm, if you're, I guess, in, in New Zealand. We got a few listeners there, by the way. Uh, but uh, just whatever. Just uh, keep the, t- the temperature somewhat at equilibrium. Okay. And. Don't overdo it. Take care. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.